0: Let me go. Hello everyone, and welcome to ADV Moto Live number 12. When it going gets tough to tough, get into ADV. Tonight we're going to get some important tips about adventure riding experiences from a longtime moto trainer and traveler. Many names have not only become popular in the ADV world until the last few years since its surge in America, but some have been promoting safe riding and travel since its grassroots beginnings here more than 10 years ago. Our feature guest tonight has not only been a staple of ADV education and travel for more than 10 years, but also an easy-to-recognize YouTube personality. Everyone, please welcome Brett Tax.
1: How are you doing today, Brett? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show tonight.
0: That's great. Where are you at right now?
1: I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Just heading out to see Lookout Mountain, and I'm heading up to Kentucky to do some motorcycle training, believe it or not.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. What's the program that you're doing this week? This week, I'm
1: actually working with the United States Army. There's a special forces group up there that I'm training, and we'll be here for the week. And then... I get the Hytale at home to do adventure training back in Oregon.
0: Wow. So you spend a lot of time traveling around, yeah? A ton of time.
1: I could tell you more details about what I'm doing, but like I said, it's special forces. So if I told you I'd have to kill you and then we have to blow up the phone. So we don't want to do that. No,
0: they have devices for that too now, I'm sure.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> They've got everything he's, he's these days.
1: they got a drone hovering overhead right now. <laughs> <laughs> they has
0: got, got a thermal image on your butt <laughs> waiting for you to say something wrong. <laughs> well, stranger things have happened. So anyway, could you give us a quick personal introduction for those who may not know you?
1: Yeah, well, actually, well I, I imagine a lot of people may recognize me at this point, but I've been in the motorcycle training world now for over 20 years, but very few people knew me until... Just a couple of years ago when I took on a project to develop just adventure training videos under the title of Moto track And so now obviously a lot of people recognize me, but I've been doing adventure training for civilians for now about 13 years, long before it became as popular as it is now and so here i am i'm still making videos and i'm still training riders and most importantly i'm still traveling the world and being a good ambassador of the country i live in and for motorcyclists
0: wow that's pretty sweet so for 20 years so that's even longer than i thought originally i mean the whole adv industry in the united states hasn't even really gone back all that far as far as being popular so for over 10 years so i guess before The whole adventure scene, you were mostly just doing it for the services? Yeah,
1: I was doing, so around 1996 is when I got into motorcycle training in general. And I sort of accidentally fell into adventure training. And that really picked up around 2007. I started toying around with it, but I didn't get serious in about 2009. And that's when I started doing things just so I looked credible. Because I started training people on that. Well, shoot! If I'm going to be teaching people how to ride these off-road, I better buy a, a bike. So, like most people, you go down the line and you buy a KLX 250 and then they had a V-Strom, and then DRZ, and then the BMW, and you know, you go through the whole line of stuff. And after a while, you realize I'm not faking it anymore. I used to take trips to Mexico or do the BDRs just so I would say I've been there, I've done that. And now I'm just driving myself to go to countries that. I've never been to or places I've never been.
0: So what was your first bike? What did you learn to ride on? You know, were there any people that were sort of an influence on you in your early riding career? Well,
1: <laughs> everybody has this story. So mine started on a Yamaha 185 where my brother, I was in high school, so I was 15 at the time. And my brother brought me out to this orchard in just an incredibly thick fog where you couldn't see but maybe 10 feet in front of you. And he pointed out all the controls, and he said, go that way and don't hit any trees. And I survived that, and then things kind of grew from there. And, and my first adventure bike was a 1976 Kawasaki KZ400. And all of my off-road excursions were unplanned, but I consider that the beginning.
0: Wow. <laughs> and about how old were you again?
1: Well, that was when I was 15. That's when I first started riding, but. I didn't get into dirt riding, and most people might be surprised about this because they do watch the videos and know that this is what I do for a living. I was in my 30s before I got into dirt riding. Our riding school up in Washington, Puget Sound Safety, we started a dirt program, and we brought up another curricula, and I started teaching people how to ride basic dirt bikes, but I wasn't a dirt rider. And so I ended up buying a dirt bike. Then a dealership came to me and they said, hey, can you do something for the adventure riders? I'm like, well, I don't know what to do about these big adventure bikes. They don't belong off-road anyways. And these guys are all old and decrepit. So what am I supposed to do with them? And he says, oh, come on. <laughs> and so, you know, lo and behold, I'm now one of them. But they came down and we had a great time just working with them and, and teaching off-road skills. But it wasn't right. And I knew that at the time. The skills I was teaching were based from dirt bike experience. And and so I moved to a KLX 250 for a while and then I had a DL 1000. That's what I really cut my teeth on was a V-Strom and took it down to Baja uh, five years in a row. Every year I went down to Baja and, and rode it in horrible ways. But the whole idea was to go, how do I teach people specifically how to ride these large adventure bikes? Because they're just not dirt bikes and they're not street bikes. It's been so exciting how to create a whole new way of looking and training on that specific type of motorcycle.
0: Yeah, it is its own world, which is entirely different from purely street or purely dirt. So having been in this over 20 years and let's say over the past 10 to 12 years or something like that, you know, that this has really been growing. How have you seen the ADV world change and where do you think it's going in the United States?
1: The way I've seen it change, when I first got into adventure riding, it was really the Ewan McGregor era. And it was at its cutting edge. And adventure riding at the time was best defined as overlanding on two wheels. And since then, it's really expanded. And now it varies anything where a lot of dual sport riders have sort of been sucked into that adventure world, and to the other side where you have the big bikes that are are brought in. But I think At this point, adventure is really what people define it as. Because you see these big, massive adventure bikes people go dual-sporting and dirt biking on. You see, and I have people come to me to these, my adventure training camps and my training tours on XT225s that are getting ready to travel the world. And it's not the bike. It's the attitude. It's the dream. It's the desire. And although many of us uh, fantasize about traveling the world for years on end, the reality is... Most of us have jobs, we have families, we have obligations, and our adventures only take us out for a weekend or a week or a couple of weeks. And if we're lucky, we can travel someplace more exotic than our own backyard. But most of our adventures are pretty close to home, and that's what the adventure world is. That's the reality, regardless of what we want it to be.
0: Yeah, well, there's been a huge, I'd say probably, especially in the past five to six years, there's been a massive growth, not just in the training but also in the rental and the touring and everything. And not just in the United States either. There have been a bunch of firms and companies of large and small size that have popped up in the United States, but really you can go pretty much anywhere in the world now and get a bike and a guide or a bike with a GPS on it and some tracks and just do some really amazing riding. Have you done a lot of the fly in? and ride sort of stuff? And what's your experience been with that? I think you were in India or something like that, doing that not too long ago.
1: Well, I have done quite a bit of that. Before I go into that, I think you really nailed one of the challenges about where the adventure world's going. Because that was the question you asked me, is where is it going? And it's not slowing down. It's absorbed the sport touring market. The people that were sport touring have moved over there a lot of touring riders have discovered that a lot of these dirt roads and gravel roads, there's some really exciting things, even if their entire goal is just to hit a you know, a ghost town or a, or a scenic point, And these bikes are fantastic touring machines. And so we're going to keep seeing that growth. But along with that growth and along with the popularity, you end up with any sport that starts off kind of has a purist organization of, of people. And as it becomes more, yeah. as, as more people get into it, you get more weekend weekend people. And that's one of the challenges I see about adventure riding now. One of the big things I focus on when I do my training, whether it's the tours or the camps, is filling in those voids that people don't consider. And that's the medical considerations. So people don't realize that these bikes will take you to amazing places where there's no cell service and you're a long ways from any kind of help. And the ability to download things like the backcountry discovery routes and throw them on your phone or your GPS and just head off into the mountains is incredible because so many people have dedicated their time to create these routes. But if something goes wrong, how do you get help? How do you know the quickest way out of the mountain? How do you reference I mean, People don't even know how to use paper maps anymore. Very often, you never used a compass. So many people are just coming into this with very little outdoors experience. And I'm finding... It's teaching things like fixing flat tires, using a compass, using a map, understanding the importance of medical equipment. And for some people, just learning how to cook outdoors as a pleasure item. Now, These are the things that I think are some of the challenges of the adventure world as people start expanding and going into these, these areas.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Of course, they have much more stress on being more self-reliant and kind of learning all of those basic survival skills that we can take for granted when we're in the comfort of our own home and sort of thing in our daily routine. So when you do your training, is it all riding oriented or do you also cover some of those other skills? I absolutely have to cover those other skills and I really have two different formats.
1: I do what I call adventure camp and it's a fixed location so that we can spend time going through toolkits and learning how to change tires, but also I have a mobile bike, which you see on the screen now, which is the Adventure Training Tours, where people who really like immersion training, they just need to be dumped into it and, and really have the opportunity to have it be real and not fake, and not just, hey, we're going over a lawn, but they realize there's a real roof on that trail or there's a washout, we have to get around that washout. They like the reality. And so I have different training formats, and each one has its pros and each one has its cons. But the big point for me is to be able to take people into these environments, to give them the skills, to give them the opportunity to try it out while they have a safety net, while somebody's there that has the medical training, who has the communicators, so that when they come out of it, they realize, wow, I didn't realize adventure riding wasn't just buying a big bike and learning how to ride it in the dirt. Frankly, learning how to ride it in the dirt is it's fun, is challenging, but it is by far not the most important aspect. That's my yeah. that's hard to, to get people to open up and understand those the importance of those other elements.
0: Absolutely. And when the adventure segment is represented in the media, be it anyone really, and certainly through A D V Moto, a lot of the really eye-catching images. Are kind of hot action shots right and especially traditionally we haven't had a lot of hot quote unquote small mid-sized bikes now we're kind of getting more right like the t7 and the 790 but in the past it was always 1200 gs's 1250 gs's i mean the gs really really ruled the roost there for several years. And of course, now a lot of the KTMs, the 1090s, 1190s, the 1290s. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you get someone that doesn't have any off-road experience on these things, just thinking, man, I'm just going to focus on working with this bike. You know what I mean? But yeah, you're right. You have all these other skills that need to be learned. You get out in the middle of nowhere, you have no communication, but you have all this equipment. What do you suggest is actually the best thing for people to do as far as often the hinterlands communication
1: as far as communication goes, the biggest thing is to make sure that you that you don't need it, meaning that you have the right tools, you have the right skills, that you don't take risks that will leave you. I mean, let's face, we're doing this because we want to have fun. Now, this that's what it's all about, right? We don't do, motorcycles are not a very logical decision in life. Right? We do it because it inspires us and it makes us excited and we smile. And so the first step is that caution, having the right riding gear, having the right training behind them, having the right equipment with you if there's a problem. But there's so many options out there. I mean, Spot was something that that came out years ago that that many riders use, but it's evolved so much with the DeLorem, which works very well because it's got two-way communication. There's satellite phones out there. You can have uh, personal locator beacons or PLBs, much like the hikers and the airplanes the boats have. There's a lot of different options out there and it really boils down to what's best for that rider. And when I was going through Africa, I carried a, a dorm with me and I didn't have a spot. I didn't have a PLB because nobody was listening. Nobody was on the other end. I mean, I could reach out home and let people know what was going on and where I was, or I could try to communicate to get help to me, but pushing a button wasn't gonna bring a helicopter in to rescue me. And so people really have to understand what are the limitations? And what's going to work best for their situation? Because again, some of us are young. Most of us aren't. Some of us are quite a bit older. The average rider that I trained is not in their 30s. It's in their 50s. And it's very common to have somebody in their late 60s or even their late early 70s coming out to learn how to adventure ride. And on the low end, you're talking early 40s. And that's kind of on the, the bottom end. occasionally. I get somebody in their 30s. But this is the age that we have. An understanding of learning from other people, it has a huge benefit that we have time and we have money, we have resources, we have opportunity to go and do this sort of exploration. And that's, I think, what we see, that's our age demographic that really exists in this market.
0: Yeah, the kids are out of the house and everything and the bills, maybe the house is either paid off or close to paid off. And now it's back to me time. <laughs> right? it's just, it's, and this is absolutely a fantastic way of doing it. but. What do you think is probably the biggest difference between someone that is kind of getting into it in their 50s and someone that's, say, coming out of it or coming into it in their 20s? I mean, I'm sure you've met everyone in the whole range. Is there like a mentality or attitude difference that you see or maybe a different set of priorities?
1: I think with what I do personally, I don't see a huge difference. I mean, obviously, the younger guys, the guys in their 30s, and let's face it, I don't see guys in their 20s, but... Guys in their 30s that come out and do this, they have a lot more energy. They want to do the exciting things. You know, when, I, when I teach how to do pivot turns or slide turns on a trail or, or how to jump over things, they're always the first ones that want to do that. But the older riders, they want the same excitement. They have certain realities. They know what their physical limits are. And the same reason we mentioned, what am I doing this week? I'm going up to train military. When I train military for off-road stuff, it turns out I train them exactly the same way that I train adventure riders, just for different reasons. And if you think about it, the goal is don't get hurt, don't break your equipment, and don't waste energy. Because as we're older, and again, that's where Matt, we don't have as much energy to waste. We don't have as much strength. Often having a bad joint is one of the things all my riders have in common. There's something there. And we have really big bikes, and we cannot wrestle these bikes. You cannot win. They are too big. You have to understand that you're never actually in control of one of these bikes off-road, that, in fact, you're command but not in control. You have to learn how to relax and how to think your way through things and be gentle and use precision. Use the land as an asset and not look at the land as something you have to attack and conquer. And for the military, these are younger guys, but they're not professional riders. You know, they're wearing 100 pounds of kit on them. They're in combat situations where they can't afford to get hurt. They can't afford to break their equipment because they'll put their entire team at risk. And they can't afford to be exhausted because they don't know what's going to happen, how long they're going to be there. Things change very quickly. So the, the reasons that we need that same skill set or the same types of training remains consistent. And- I think that's why I get a lot of riders who come to me because they recognize I'm not a dirt bike guy trying to train you how to ride an adventure bike like a dirt bike. And I'm not a street bike guy or a track guy on how to take a street bike and ride in the dirt trying to ride it like a trials bike. These are adventure bikes. They're big, they're heavy, they're fantastic machines to ride, but they require a very specific type of skill set and mentality to do it well.
0: Yeah, so what would you actually recommend someone start on?
1: Well, I'm a fan of small bikes. When I started learning, I ended up with my very first, I guess you could call it an adventure bike, was a KLX 250, a a Kawasaki KLX. And I spent a lot of time on the trails, learning how to ride that on the trails. And went from that to a a DL1000 and realized... It's a great road bike, but it is a whole lot of bike when you get it onto a trail. and it requires a new skill set. And I ended up landing through a couple others and ended up on an 800 GS, a BMW. I've spent 100,000 miles on that bike, just doing the BDRs, riding through South America and Mexico and Baja. But the skills that I have today that I demonstrated when I was riding the 1200 GS, uh, doing the Motor Trek series, I didn't gain those skills riding that bike. I learned those skills on smaller bikes, I learned those bike those skills on other bikes in challenging terrains, and I brought them to that machine. And to start out on a large bike like that is definitely a challenge, it's definitely a challenge for a lot of riders.
0: Well, here's one, Mondragon78, that's the Honda Grom GS125, and I guess the monkeys and stuff that he saw at March Moto would be perfect. What do you think about those mini bikes?
1: well an adventure bike is what you do with it right so if you load that up and you and i both know people who are traveling the world on scooters yes i have a friend traveling right now he's down in guatemala he's on a wr250 so again we travel and often those are the better bikes for that environment so these bikes are not again let's go back to the fact the truth we don't buy motorcycles based on logic we buy them on passion and every time i see somebody comment because I'm riding the 1200. They go, well, that's just dumb. I mean, Paul and I just rode through Lockhart Basin Trail in Utah and Paul rode this 1200. I rode the new KTM 790. And one of the comments recently was, well, why did you guys ride those big bikes? That's dumb. You should have brought a small bike. Well, we both own smaller bikes, but we wanted to do it. It was fun. And I see the same thing on other side where they're like, well, you have an XT 250. That's not an adventure bike. You have to have a, a big bike. To do it. Well. I call BS on that too. It's not machined and it needs to match the rider. And I've had ladies or older gentlemen who may not have the same strength as somebody that's six foot and 200 pounds or 180 pounds. And they don't realize when I ride a 1200, for example, Christina, she rides an 800 GS. When I ride the 1200 and she's riding her 800, in reality, if you're talking about strength and capability, she's probably still riding a bigger bike than I am. And it's about rider bike match. That's what it comes out. There's my XT 600 through Africa. That was a perfect bike for that trip. I absolutely love that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh,
1: that took me back. You asked me a question. We just saw that XT 600 and one that's right there. I love that bike, Mm -hmm. and it was great for that trip. But you said, "Do I fly in and ride?" And that was a question you asked me. And the answer is, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I never did get to it. But the answer is, yeah, I buy the bike best for the job. So when I was in India, we borrowed bikes, we rented bikes, we were loaned bikes, and we rode everything from an FZ250 to an 800 Tiger. You know, We rode Africa Twins, we rode scooters. When I go to Alaska, I always go up there, rent a KLR650, cheap bike, great for Alaska. When I went to Africa, we went into Spain, we picked up the XT600, we rode it through Africa, and then I sold it. And so I have a tendency to Find the bike that's going to be best for the job at hand, and then. So yes, I do fly and ride and come home because I don't get to do years. I'm lucky enough to do months at a time, and that makes me happy.
0: Yeah, and I think flexibility as an attitude is really one of the most important things you can take in your toolkit. I agree. Even if you're just exploring a new back road in your own state or in your own county or whatever, regardless, you've never been onto it. Or you're going to a totally different country in the middle of nowhere with languages that you don't speak and customs that you don't understand. Just having a flexible attitude makes it more fun, more enjoyable, and more likely to survive on many different levels, I think, to be honest with you.
1: Carl, you just hit one of my number one tips. That's it right there. You nailed it straight on the head. It's all about the attitude and being flexible and open-minded and accepting cultures for the cultures they are, the bike that you have, the situation you're in and always leaving with a smile and always shaking hands, even if you don't like the person, it's always.
0: Yeah, that's very true. And there's a lot of personal lessons to learn through those experiences, right? Things you thought were uncomfortable for you before, you know what I mean? Suddenly you realize they're not such a big deal, right? And it just kind of pushes your meter, right, of tolerance and acceptance. For really everything, the kind of bike you ride, how you deal with people that you meet, whether you like them or not, but also what you think about yourself and how you feel about yourself and how you understand yourself and how you become more confident. What's a problem and what's not a problem in your life anymore, right? And all that is absolutely tremendous growth. Going back a little bit, you had mentioned that you had done a lot of work for the YouTube channel, uh, MotoTrek, but you've since moved on to your own channel and tackling the entertainment industry for the ADV world is kind of challenging in its own niche way. So what do you think is important in educating and entertaining ADV riders?
1: Well, that's one of the reasons I, I've decided not to do any branded videos anymore. It's too difficult because I do so many things. I, I was in New Zealand this winter training. And as you can tell, I'm up here training this time and I did the MS shows. I was down in Columbia last winter doing training and just trying to track who I am and what title I have, I decided it's a lot easier just to be me. And so if anybody wants to follow me, they can just type my name into Google or type it into YouTube and they'll find me. I found that I want to focus on the needs of the riders. And one of the issues that ran into Motor Trek, as many saw, it was a, a production. There were two of us that made those, but I did not have full control over the content that went out and that was an issue for me because recently i put a video up just about chain maintenance. it was a simple video i stopped on a road trip and i used one of the tips i have it's not the perfect way it's not every way to do it it was just a tip and a lot of these are really short they're three minute videos they're five minute videos and it's really hard to monetize on those it's hard to make money doing those and i'm trying to to do some fundraising and and try to do some monetizing to keep doing it but i want to be able to offer those types of videos that aren't quite as sexy you know but are so extremely important and to respond to the viewers that was the other thing is that viewers would come in and they would leave comments and say i want to know about they would take the time to type those and i read all those comments and i say this is a great comment let's do that and sometimes it was like well There aren't enough DCT owners out there on Africa Twin, so let's not do a series on DCT riding. Well, I would love to do a series on the specific techniques for riding DCT. What a great bike with such interesting technology. And you have to have a different mentality. And I train people when they come to camp, I would love to do videos on that. Or, Or as we talk about navigation or just being able to respond to what the viewers want me to do.
0: Yeah, that's what I had absolutely never thought about that. You're right. The technique for DCT would be entirely different and involve a different set of timing and coordination. Have you spent a lot of time on the ATs? I've been an early
1: acceptor of the automatic transmission. So the dual, all the way back to the VFR 1200. I was one of the few people that tested and went, I can see potential in this. I was actually really excited to try it out. But when I was in India, I spent three months in India, not this last winter before traveling all over India, doing training and. A lot of Africa twins there. And the only bike they sell in India is a DCT. So every time I oh, had no. the chance to do a demo, to get on, to play with the riders, to spend time on it, that was the bike I road, was the, the DCT. And then I came back and I was able to convince somebody I knew that was close to me to buy one. And so I'm able to grab a hold of his bike periodically and play on it. And I'm hoping to use, if I can talk him into it, to use his bike as a bike to create a small video series just for those riding techniques, just for those riders.
0: Okay, so what's a tip you would give someone that was getting into a DCT? The
1: first tip is DCTs are not for beginners. That's one of the first Mm -hmm. misnomers is, I want a DCT because I'm not very good on the clutch. A DCT requires the rider, the pilot of that bike, to be much better about staying in control, about staying forward on the bike, about not getting kicked back. Because the thing that gets us, you've heard of whiskey throttle, or, or the viewers, if they're watching, if they haven't heard whiskey throttle, it's when the bike launches in front of you. You grab the throttle and it launches, and you're full throttle. Blah, the bike goes wheeling off and becomes really exciting YouTube material. Well, the DCT doesn't have a clutch. So on a regular bike, if you do that, you just pull the clutch in and things kind of settle back down. You're like, okay, I survived that. But with the DCT, because it's automatic, When that bike kicks you back, if you grab a handful of throttle, the end of that ride is probably going to be a little bit spectacular, one way or the other. And so it's not for the novice rider, it's for the rider who wants that style of of transmission, that style of motorcycle. It's very good for people that may have a weak clutch hand or issues there. It's very good for mm-hmm. people who don't want to deal with all the shifting, especially if you're a commuter or dealing with a lot of stop and go traffic. I'm so much oh, nicer, yeah. And the traction, the way it delivers power is very, very smooth. And I think a lot of riders would ride smoother and better on that bike than they would even on a clutch. And they really undersell the value of that technology.
0: Yeah, well, Honda was really the first guys to bring it out. I know they tried to push it for a long time. Do you think it's just like the they brought it out on was too large? Or people just love the old manual transmission? Or it was the extra cost or something? I think it's just a matter of time. I just think people, uh,
1: automatic cars for a long time, people didn't believe you had a real sports car unless they had a manual in it. And of course, now everything's paddle shift, which if you think about it, that's all the DCT is. It's a paddle shift. You still have control over gears. You still have control of the motorcycle it's just in a different way And i think change is really hard and i think as you get more people coming into motorcycling and having those as options they'll be far more accepting than some of those people that are that are diehard i still find myself when i'm riding the ktm so i have the 790 and i bought it one of the big drivers to buy that motorcycle was the technology i've never had a bike with so much technology there that's rider A technology and I just want to learn how it works and how it assists and where it can get you in trouble. And But I still have a tendency of turning it all off and riding without it and I enjoy that. But I think as we are more accepting of technology, as riders bring that in, you'll see the DCTB or that concept be more acceptable. I think electric bikes are going to help curb that gap as well.
0: Oh yeah, sure. They have a ton of torque too. I guess people have to be careful with that. Also as well. So it's not for a new rider, but how about a few cool tips for new riders from the more technical side? From what we've seen, at, right, in in the industry is you know, like you said, right, you have a lot of people from sport touring coming into the A D V and they're using AD, the large ADV bikes for sport touring because they're amazing for it. You got this upright riding posture great visibility and now you've got all the bells and whistles that any sport touring bike would want and slightly longer suspension. So as long as the reach is not a problem, right? Then it's pretty much looks like the way to go. And then from the dirt to the ADV, where someone's coming from a trail or motocross oriented riding onto a dual sport oriented riding, let's say coming from dirt or trail to ADV, what's a couple of things that someone that's just getting into it might want to pay attention to? Let's start with the street.
1: As far as three okay, buttons okay. go, because that's kind of the one you intro the biggest thing I would tell anybody, Dirt or Street coming in, I'm going to start with this, is it's really easy to look at the pictures, the magazines, and the videos, and just buy everything you see. And to open up the catalog and just start throwing things and throwing money at your bike. And these OEM bikes are usually quite capable. that They often only need a few minor adjustments to really, and it's usually protection-related just to make them you know, better off. But even a lot of the factory skid plates are fine for a lot of what riders are doing. And don't throw risers on the bike. Don't start changing things until you know what you want the bike to do, until you know what your skills need to do. One of the number one things I do at the camp is when we do rider fit, we have an entire clinic where we teach the riders how to set the bikes up and the ergonomics of the bike to match them. The number one things we do is remove risers. Because the first thing that riders like to do is throw risers on, and it's before they understand the way to be in the proper balance and the proper position on the motorcycle, and we end up changing those. There are exceptions, of course, depending on the bike. Like the F750GS is a little more street focused, so taller riders might need risers. If I'm 6'3", I might need risers. But I'm seeing guys on very equipped motorcycles like that are very well the ergonomics of them are correct, like the Africa twin. And they might be 5'10", 5'11", immediately throwing risers on the bike and it just really throws them into the wrong position. So don't throw money at the bike until you know what you're doing. Take your time, don't get excited, wait (laughs) just a little bit. But as far as the riding skills, the technical aspects of going from the road to the dirt, road riders to dirt riders is a really tough transition because road riders are used to their bike feeling very stable and very secure to the road. And when they go from the road to the dirt and they realize that this bike wiggles and moves all over the place, they tense up and then they try to take control because they feel like they're in a controlled motorcycle. And that's the top mistake riders make, is thinking they're in control. I did a just a really short video on rake and trail because rake and trail is what keeps the bikes balanced. And this whole thing, I'm just sort of coasting down the mountain. My hands are off the, the handlebars, and I'm talking about how the bike balances. What I'm really trying to show people is that look, just because you're on gravel, just because you're going downhill, doesn't mean the motorcycle falls down. I'm riding it; my hands aren't on it. The bike will stay balanced. And the more riders learn how to stay relaxed on the bike, to not grip the handlebars and to allow their hands to kind of pull it, then the better off they're going to be. And That's the first thing is recognize you're not the one in control, that the geometry, the engineering on those motorcycles, the bikes don't want to fall over. The other two other tips I'm going to throw out just for street riders, we'll stick to three, is off-road, the clutch control is critical. It can be very easy to get on the street and ride a motorcycle, a lot like you drive a car where the clutch is almost in or out, and you do a lot of your management with just using your throttle hand and when you're off-road you don't get to do that you know you really need to be able to manage traction if you're in the mud or if you're in the gravel and to use that very fine motor control the last one i'm just going to say is that you know standing up can help it always gives you better visibility but standing up alone does not make things better so i see a lot of riders try to stand up because they see it in the videos But they don't really understand why they're standing up and what that does for them. Standing up gives you greater visibility. And a lot of people think, well, if I stand up, I lower my center of gravity. And that's not necessarily true, although it can be true about what you're doing. So, yes, it's okay to stand, but don't burn up your calves. Don't stand far back on the bike where you're out of balance. And spend some time researching and understanding what that's all about. And I'll have videos on that as well. There's other videos I did. I did some on motor track called The Weightless Rider. It's a fantastic video that talks about this concept and this dynamic. But that would be my three top tips for street to dirt.
0: Cool. Awesome. I would like to interject with a question, again, from Mondragon. He said, how much technology is too much for an adventure bike to have? And I think if you're starting off-road and you have this, this large bike, especially that, and it has a lot of bells and whistles on it, sometimes quite literally, (laughs) how much of that ends up being a distraction things like TFT displays. Now they're almost like having a little mini TV, certainly GPSs. I mean, I've been guilty at looking at GPSs and stuff too, and I probably should have been paying a little better attention. So I have to rein myself in a little bit. You know what I mean? But is there a level of technology that is too much if you're learning?
1: Well, I think everybody's off road. And we're really talking about two different things. If you're talking about distractions
0: know gps's
1: and the screens and your cell phone and for me i always use bluetooth that way if i have youtube playing while i'm riding and i can hear it just a joke but certainly distractions are a problem but technology itself i don't see as an issue this technology has been designed to make us better riders if you're dependent on the technology that's an issue but if you have the technology to back you up that's an advantage this is what i do professionally and i just bought a bike with almost every little bell and whistle that you can get. I've got slipper clutch and power modes and multiple levels of traction control and ABS for off-road, on-road for on-road. I can turn it totally off. I have lots of options, and I like that for riders. And I've had people ask me, "Well, I, I don't want to buy with anyone that has all these new bells and whistles on it because I don't want to become dependent on it." Every one of these motorcycles, you can turn that technology down or you can turn it off, and I do believe you should train without it. You should understand what the bike's really doing. Don't let the technology cover up your flaws or your errors. On the other hand, I'd much rather fly a plane with a, an ejection seat and a parachute than without one. You know, <laughs> knowing that if I make a mistake, it's going to step in and help me out. I'm running with ABS, off-road ABS, and I make a mistake that that ABS there is to save me and I can move on. So my thought is, no, I don't have a problem with the technology. I don't think it's an issue unless you're traveling the world and you can't get support. Or there's a lot of things that can go wrong because you have more sensors and more costs. But that's, again, that's a whole different consideration than does it help the rider.
0: Right on. All right. So how about from trail motocross to dual sport ADV?
1: Okay, perfect. My number one tip, the, the thing that it's obvious that I can point out to dirt riders, adventure bikes do not crash like dirt bikes
0: what does that mean yes
1: we can ride a dirt bike aggressively and we can ride an adventure bike aggressively we can ride that adventure bike just like a dirt bike right up until something doesn't go as planned and then they don't crash the same there's a whole lot more weight going on there there's a whole lot more chance of injury of damage to the machine so you have to think differently when you get off of the dirt and you get on one of these big adventure bikes. Our best nobbies on an adventure bike are not anywhere near what you get on a dirt bike. So that's the number one tip for, for those riders. The second thing I would point out to them is suspension on an adventure bike is always being taxed. When I'm on a 200-pound bike and I'm riding through the woods, I can jump things, I can plow into things. I can be pretty sloppy, to be honest, and the bike's going to cover for me. But when it's a 500, 600, 700 pounds of bike, depending on what bike you have and how much luggage you have on board, and you're bouncing into rocks and logs, that's when we cut tubes, that's when we bend rims, that's when we blow suspension. We don't have as much suspension travel. And so you have to remember these are delicate machines in the aspect that we have to ride them with more precision. We have to be better about reading the terrain, reading the trail, understanding how to roll over or how to use the land to benefit us. You know, where are the banks on the trails that we can ride into? And I would say that's, you know, probably the second thing I'd point out for him. And as far as uh, dirt riders go for the third thing is you guys are missing out. If you haven't tried out this adventure market, it takes you so much farther instead of trailing your bike to Utah to ride the Lockhart Basin, instead of trailering out to the trails, you can get on this bike, load it up, and travel states or countries and be able to take those skills and the joys you have from off-road and take them to an, a level that just, it's inspiring. It's just amazing what we can do, where we can go, what we can see on them. And so if they haven't done it, my third tip is time to jump in. You're missing out.
0: Yeah, right on. And there's more range of bikes now than there has ever been, probably in this country. Small bikes, large bikes, off-road street oriented, off-road, more off-road oriented. I mean, and it's just getting better, I think, as the years go by.
1: I've been asked about the 1200 GS. Most people that know me from YouTube know me as the GS guy on, on a 1200. What they don't know is the two bikes preceding that were both 800s, an 800 GS and an 800 Tiger. And so when I moved to the 790, the people who know me you know, close, they weren't surprised. That made sense. It was a natural thing for me to go back to that midsize bike. It can tour, it can play, it does all the things. that makes me smile. It's all about smiles per mile. You know, that's what this is all about. But oh, geez, it's amazing when you're sitting here a long ways from home after a plane and you completely forget where you were going on a statement. Cause I get all excited about that. The gosh dang, where was I going with that Carl? You no, know, this <laughs> proves when when I said that we're yeah, around that about, age. Uh... This just proves I am absolutely one hundred percent dead center of my own bell <laughs>
0: curve. Yeah. I don't even uh... know
1: where I was going.
0: Yeah, I believe you were talking about folks knew you as a twelve hundred GS, but the two bikes I mean, before that were eight hundred.
1: Yeah, why I bought those bikes? The twelve hundred I bought because I was touring on the pavement a lot. And I was buying the bike for about two years of use, and then it went back to the 790. You were talking about technology, and went back to the 790 because I wanted to, you know, to have something I could play on the trail that would make me giggle or trail focused. It's funny because I just rode the, the 900 Triumph, and what a fantastic machine! Smooth and powerful and refined. And I got back onto that 790, and it felt like it was on a KLR for a moment, kind the chuggy motor and lightweight and It's just amazing how diverse and different all these machines are. Like to 1200s, you can have refined touring machines, or you can go find a KLR, an old DR650. And we all have the same fun. We all have the same smiles.
0: So much fun. And you had a Tiger 800 for a while, right?
1: Yeah, I had it for a little over a year. And I sold it just before I went to Africa. And I sold it so I would have a little extra money in the bank. So if I had any problems in Africa, I would have money for it. And I bought the 1200 before I got home. So I would have it for me and I was able to do what I need to do.
0: Right on. So off of the technical stuff, just kind of getting more into the people stuff, do you have any tips for people who have never ridden outside the US before? And as far as being inside the US, uh, how does someone go about finding a community of supportive writers? You know, like a lot of writers, You're going to say, oh, I'm a sport bike rider. And I've met sport bike riders that have been coming straight into the ADV, largely through KTMs and stuff like that, like 1090s and 1190s. And they're just not familiar with the community. They don't know where to go, and their friends might not want to go with them, necessarily, you know what I mean? So, like, that lone solo sort of avant-garde rider who's going to go against the grain
1: and that was one of the issues i had when i did the adventure training is that i would have people come and do training i talked to them two years later and say what did you do i haven't done anything because i didn't want to go in the woods by myself and i had nobody to ride with so we started doing the training tours or we did outrides that were part of the camp just to get them onto the trails and try things out but you're correct you know getting the community to find the right people that's something that they have to figure out of course there's horizons unlimited which is well known for you know travelers there's adb rider that's been around forever there's rallies you hosted uh, several adventure rallies and they were some of the best adventure rallies i'd ever been to were, were the ones that were adb moto i love them i love the attitude and the camaraderie and the close-knit community that existed there but watching the riders team up and change phone numbers and change emails and and create their own small community of support was really neat i see that on the west coast i always go out to the tour tech rally and and the same thing so people finding these small runs whether it's bmw whether it's tour tech whether it's adp moto whether it's the ktm rallies but going to these rallies if you're brand new that's a great place to to meet people and to try to get into it In fact, christina that's how we met initially, my wife and my travel partner, also my ex girlfriend. So, Christina met me at one of the rallies because she was new to adventure riding and didn't know how to find a community. And she had been on the forums and on the websites and on the WhatsApp groups and Facebook pages. And she just was trying to find that. And instead, she ended up traveling South America with me. And well, that seemed to work out pretty well because then she married me. But yeah, that is a good way, I think, for, for people to find riders to ride with, the people they can trust. Well,
0: all right, we are kind of a bit jammed up for time here. So very quickly, future plans, what's next for you guys?
1: Well, this winter, I'm hoping, right now I'm working with a group to go to Kenya. I'm gonna go do some adventure training in Kenya. if It all works out in December, January. And then one of the things I wanna do is, every year I wanna to put together an adventure tour that is a non-tour tour. I want a team of riders I wanna to take to another country and to show them the countries that I see in the way I see them. We stay local. We'll be in places where there's squat toilets. We'll be in places where we eat local food. We'll always have support. We'll make it safe. And so this year, I'm taking a group of riders to Nepal. And unfortunately, I'm bringing to up to 10 riders but I lost four, not lost them like they died uh, due to the COVID, but just jobs and all the other issues. So I'm down to six riders doing that. So there, I still have a couple spots. If any of the viewers are interested in joining me, they can find that on my webpage at redtax.com. But yeah, so I'm going to Nepal this year. I'm doing uh, hopefully Kenya. I know that New Zealand, I was there last year. They wanted me to come back this winter, but I haven't heard from them. And I imagine with the COVID thing, there may be a delay And I so I went down to work with the government to help train riders down there. So that's my immediate future. And then I'm just going to keep plugging out videos along with all the normal training I do and try to support people. Let me throw out one more thing before you cut me off because I know you run out of time. Let me tell you what inspires me. When I was down in Colombia this last winter, I did a show at one of the Suzuki dealers for Suzuki, Colombia. And I had six riders there that were traveling the Gringo Trail, South America. And they had all altered their trips and times to be there. And when we sat and talked, every one of them had some kind of story that said, Hey, I'm here because I saw your videos. I got into adventure writing. Or I had this scenario and I could hear you in my head telling me what to do. And I got through it because of that. That is why I'm doing this. Those six writers and the other writers that send me messages and emails that I meet in person that tell me these stories, that's the reason I'm still making videos.
0: Right on, man. Yeah, it's all about the various ways that we can all you know, support each other and the community. A lot of people think you go around, and you ride nice bikes, stuff like that means you're rolling in, in dough, your life is fancy or something. <laughs> Actually, it's not like that at all. That is the hardcore reality. It is a passion-based industry. We are small and we're tight-knit, but there's just a ton of promise because what we do is gigantic and hard. You know what I mean? And I think that that keeps a lot of us doing it. And even if people don't necessarily commit straight to it immediately, it's an idea that grows in their mind. And then when the time is right, they know it. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for coming in tonight, Brett. I know you have a really busy schedule and you've just got more stuff going on. Love to have you back on sometime. Good luck with the rest of your projects. And I'm sure we will be in touch soon. Absolutely.
1: And thanks for calling me and finding me and having me come on the show. So I would love to be back in the future sometime. You have a great night. And for all the viewers out there, thanks for watching. And thanks for supporting a to B Moto. They're a great group of guys and please keep watching the videos. I do them for you.
0: Awesome. Thanks, man. Talk soon. Well, all right. Thanks again to Brett for sharing his thoughts and experiences with us tonight. Making a name for yourself in a passion-based niche like adventure writing takes a lot of dedication and love, not only for what you do, but also the places you go to and the people you work with every day. Please be sure to check out Brett's homepage at brettax.com to stay up to date with his latest projects, shenanigans, and YouTube creations. But in the meantime, join us next week. Sorry, two weeks, I'm sorry. Thursday, August 9th, for the next installment of ADV Motive Podcast with Nathan Slabaw, And then again, two weeks later, as we interview... The couple who has organized more ADV events than anyone and inspired countless adventures, Grant and Susan Johnson, founders of Horizons Unlimited. As always, your support means a lot and keeps the motorcycle world running. So don't forget to like, subscribe our channel, and visit AdventureMotorcycle.com for more news, reviews, videos, merch, and more. Until next time, everyone, ride safe, have fun. No.